couple of things before we get started again. I think this uh, topic has stirred a lot of conversation at our tables, and that's, that's what it was meant to do. I think all of us have a very vested interest in this particular topic, and it's very timely. <clears throat> Um, I've already announced the uh, presentation for next week with Dr. Tagg and the abuse of uh, national emergencies by U.S. presidents. That's a very interesting topic. Um, all of our topics, of course, are on our website uh, from the past, and you can look there. And uh, now we're going to begin our uh, Q&A. Um, just to remember, when you... Use the microphone over there. Uh, it's there for you. You even have a podium now. But don't misinterpret that as a place where you can pontificate on things. Uh, we want to keep your comments brief and your questions brief. Make sure you uh, introduce yourself uh, before you uh, ask your question or make your comment. And uh, we will uh, try to get as many people as possible to uh, answer their questions. Uh, <clears throat> with that, I'm going to ask uh, Shari to come up, and she now has a, a guest with her who is going to also be part of the Q&A, and she will introduce uh, Brenda. Thank you, Bob. First off, I would like to thank SACPA for inviting us to come here today. We really appreciate the opportunity to speaking to all of you, and I really hope you did get something out of my presentation today. I would like to take the moment to invite Brenda Hill to come up and join me. Brenda is the manager of client services at the Alzheimer's Society, and she's the one who works with the caregivers and the person with a diagnosis of dementia. So she's got a lot of experience dealing with that dementia firsthand. So, um, and as well, before I, before I forget, don't forget, we have tickets for sale for this brain awareness presentation. And if anyone is interested, come and see us after the Q&A, and we'd be happy to sell you a ticket. Brenda? So, questions, anybody? Yes, I have a question. I'm Mary Shellington, and we, I asked several people at our table, if I go to see my family doctor, what kind of evidence or tests or whatever will he use in order to diagnose me? Oh, well, I have a, I have, I'm going to see my doctor, who's male. <laughs> so you can ask your own. <laughs> uh, well, Mary, it depends on who your doctor is, how long you've known your doctor, how well they're going to respond to this issue. Because they may say, I had a gentleman just, just a little while ago call me and his doctor said, oh, nothing to worry about, you're just getting older. Um, so you have to get past that piece first. And then if you know your doctor and he's doing some, um, sometimes they'll do what's called a mini mental. Uh, sometimes they'll do some blood tests. Uh, they'll do, they may uh, do uh, um, some kind of x-ray or but they may refer you to a specialist. Mm -hmm. And so here in Lethbridge, we have been very fortunate. Our, our group is shrinking a bit, but uh, for, for older adults with this kind of diagnosis request or looking at these issues, 
usually to one of the gerontology people um, at the gerontology clinic at the Chinook. You will have a referral to them from your family doctor, or you may get a referral to a neurologist, depending on what your doctor thinks. But your family doctor will just do those basic tests to refer you then on to uh, a specialist. So then can I ask another question about how long is a wait if you're referred to a specialist, uh, um, generally? It will it'll depend, um, sort of three to six months. Mm -hmm. um, if, it's a more, if it's a more emergent situation, uh, sometimes people have gotten in as little as six weeks, but usually three to six months before you get into a, to a specialist. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mike McCaig. <clears throat> I wonder if you could uh, clarify a little bit for me. I, I understood when you said if you have Alzheimer's, you have dementia. What are the different symptoms between someone who only has dementia and someone who has Alzheimer's? Well, it's really not only dementia, and it's really not Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's has a certain progression of the disease. It's been well documented. So for Alzheimer's people, they start out in the early stage with some deficits that are creating problems for them. You know, they may get turned around, they may misplace things, but they can still function fairly well. Um, and they progress sort of back in time to the middle stage where they forget, you know, more, more important things, the higher reasoning and functioning things, communication. Um, so uh, the example I like to give is you start off, I said to uh, one of, one of a social worker I know who has Alzheimer's disease, I said, Dura, how, when did you know you had something wrong? And she said, she was driving by out on a country drive with her friends, and she, she drove down the road and she said, oh, look at those things. And her friends all kind of laughed at her, and, and she said, I, I thought, well, I should, knew, I should know what that is. And she said it wasn't until quite a while later that she remembered the word for those things was cow. And that's how her dementia started, she started to have problems with those words for things. So Alzheimer's disease, I mean, it's really a long explanation to explain the stages of it. Some break it down into eight stages, some into three or four. The other kinds of dementia, some of them can be minimized or totally, totally treated if it's something like a bladder infection or stress or a thyroid problem. Um, or uh, blood levels of medications. I mean, your doctor can then look at all that and say, oh, hey, we need to take you off this or put you on that. We need to give you some antibiotics. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of, of looking at, at those things in the diagnosis part. And then in the de dementia part, some of them present differently. So people with a frontal damper, a frontal temporal dementia will present with more different behaviors because their filter is gone. So the filter that says to us, well, I shouldn't tell that gal right there to go to hell because I don't like her. Um, I'll keep my mouth shut. 
Uh, that filter in frontal temporal is a lot of times gone. And I, and I will say, well, you go to hell. I don't like the way you look. Um, so, you know, whereas Alzheimer's people, like Sherry said earlier, may think it's 1955. And if you gave them a kitchen of 1955, they would function quite nicely. Uh, people often ask about driving. Um, a lot of people have been driving for, you know, 60 years. And, um, you know, they're quite capable of managing to be a safe driver. However, you wouldn't want to put them on the new entrance into Calgary with all the interchanges and all the, or even at the far end of Mayor McGrath, because there's just too much change has happened. They can't remember. They can't process that. It's a higher functioning piece of the brain. So, yes, yeah, so it's very, it can be very different. Lewy body, uh, with, quite often with Parkinson's, you know, they, those kinds of uh, dementias, people can hallucinate. Um, have delusions. So th there's just such a range of things. So uh, d does that answer your question? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'm Tad Mitsui. Uh, do you have any wisdom or advice as to how to tell the person you respect very much and love that you should go to see the doctor about <laughs> the problem. I recently uh, have a very good friend who lost the business. He worked hard, built up his industry from ground level up, up to 1,000 employees. And one after the other, he made wrong decisions as his situation uh, developed. And uh, his son said, how could I tell my dad that you go, go to see the doctor and have you examined that? Do you have any advice on that in a diplomatic way? I will give you two options or three options because for someone like me, I'm a, I'm a very frank talker, right? And I, I, I believe nothing really should be off limits. Right? With my parents, when they were alive, I am quite happy to make any kind of discussion to say, hey, Dad, you are like, this is bad. You need to do something. And I'm coming too because, but my next door neighbor and her daughters, they were not people that were taught, you know, mother was respected and her word was law. And uh, so the girls didn't feel comfortable talking to her about going to the doctor. And she was, had mid-stage dementia by the time they... So what we did was we made arrangements for one of the daughters to just take her for a checkup uh, and have the doctor tell her. Um, sometimes when you're a friend, you can say, you can go and you can sit with that friend like you always have and had a cup of coffee or whatever and say, gee, you know, Jim, I notice there's a bit of problem with your memory. Do you think it's a good idea to go get it checked? Maybe they can do something. Because we don't talk about these things. People end up like your friend who may have been able to have a, a medication that gave him some 
length of time with more quality decision making, um, had he not, no, not had a diagnosis. So, so I think my my bottom line words of wisdom are: as uncomfortable as it might be, talk about it. Uh, what Sherry was talking about is they know how you make they, them feel. He knows you're important. Your friend knows you're important to him. You can just tap that and say, you know, we need to we need to go see see someone, do something. Uh, and and it's the it's the kindest thing you can do if someone is so in denial for uh, something that is really going to create problems. I always think, you know, when I worked in Calgary at a, at a senior center in Calgary, and I worked with a lot, the hospitals, what they used to do is they'd send people out in taxis and they were confused and had dementia. You know, people froze to death. They, they got turned around and they froze to death. Uh, they made poor decisions and burned their houses down. So, you know, horrible consequences can come from staying quiet. Hi. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. And Sherry, first I want to commend you, thank you, but also commend you for the uh, two, two bookshelf images <laughs> Uh, especially the one with the, well, both, the, the one with our sort of factual memory and the emotional memory. My wife and I have a wonderful little story, about, uh, example with my mother with the emotional one. My, uh, she was 96 when she died. When my sister was a daily visitor, se sometimes several times, at one time then my mother said, I don't know that you're my daughter when my sister said that she was, but I know that I love you. She verbalized that. Yeah. So I wanted to give that example. And I, the, and I really liked your juxtaposition at the beginning, which I'm going to put analogous to the uh, bluebirds are birds, not all birds are bluebirds, uh, oh. relation of dementia and Alzheimer's. Okay. My question is sort of twofold. Do, is there sort of a protocol uh, that where one can sort of a checkoff thing to see at what stage is this person with dementia or Alzheimer's a danger to themselves and society? At what stage that they need to go into full-time care? And in southern Alberta, in Lethbridge, do we have adequate facilities for people like that? Uh, I would say we have material if you are if you are computer literate and you're a, a Google fan don't get your diagnosis from Google but go to the Alzheimer's Canada website or the Alzheimer's UK website um, there's all kinds of material on there about the progression of the disease and how it looks and what you should be looking for uh, we have material at the office that's free of charge that has checklists in it where you can look at the different stages of the disease and what's happening. Um, we are more than happy to put together a package for you if you can't get down to the office and mail it out to you. Um, so we, you know, there is a lot of really good source material. Uh, I would also say you always want to go, you always want to keep in touch with your family doctor. If you don't have one, get one. 
Uh, if you don't like that one or if they're giving you poor, poor answers, find another one. Um, but you know, this, you need that medical source, but you can also get a lot of knowledge and information from um, the Alzheimer's website, um, some of the other not-for-profit organizations that work in this area have additional information. Uh, we have books that we lend out on Lewy body, on frontal temporal, so uh, you can come down and see us. And before you go to the second part of the question, I'd like to add that... Um, before we go to the second part of your question, um, what I want you to remember is that you have one person who you know who has Alzheimer's and they diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then you have another person over here who has Alzheimer's. They're going to look different. They're going to they're act differently and they're going to be a different period of time between the, the different symptoms on them because they are different. And, and the way the disease is going to attack their brain is going to be different. So you can't, you can't say, oh, well, he's got Alzheimer's, so this is going to be the progression of the disease, and on this day, check, and then this day, check, or whatever. It's going to be different for everybody. So learn as much as you can about it, but understand that it's going to be different for each person. So you can't put a blanket slate on, on, on the disease and say, well, you have this, so this is what's going to happen to you, because it may not. Okay? So, and about the facilities. Um, the facilities here in Lethbridge... I think, you know, all, all across the country, we recognize that we are not, uh, we are not equipped to provide appropriate care for people across the spectrum. That's being said, there are several uh, care centers and, and, and uh, facilities that, that do have dementia patients and do do their best to provide care for, for dementia patients. Um, I will say I have no particular recommendations because I talk to a lot of people who are caregivers and I hear good things about one place and I hear bad things about the same place. So, you know, it it's kind of goes in cycles. It depends on staff. It depends on expectations. Uh, but, you know, uh, as, a, as a society, as a city, uh, as a province, we need to look at what our capacity is for care center beds because we certainly, nowhere in this country is, is keeping pace with what's going to happen. Thank you. Well, and another thing, um, what's happening is that people are... Um, um, starting to understand a little better about the people who have a diagnosis in these care centers. And what, what's going on is um, we have a case in point that we heard a story about a lady who kept, they couldn't keep her in her bed at night. They couldn't keep her in her bed at night. She was always wandering around, getting up, and the, the nurses were really frustrated because they didn't know what was going on. And then they found out that she was a night nurse when she used to be younger. And so she was doing her rounds. And so that once they understood that that was what her brain was doing, they could work with her and try to make her comfortable in that new scenario, okay? So, you know, it depends on, depends on the people that are going to be looking after them too, the kind of understanding they have of the disease and the person who has it. Anyways, go ahead. Thanks for your talk. Um, I'm actually going to try to close a triangle that I've noticed here. So, oh, sorry, Leona Jacobs. Um, so Tad talked about the, the observer of a condition, and we talked about that, and Mary asked about going and talking to the doctor and, 
and we talked about that. So before coming here, I was late, and I was late because I was caught in the locker room um, being attentive to a former colleague of mine who was tired. And when we got down to talking about why she was tired, it was because she'd been up um, dealing with her parents in Nova Scotia. Now, as it turns out, her mother is suffering from something. The word dementia came up, but what that means, of course, needs some fine-tuning. Um, but the frustration was that they could see this decline, and the woman and her doctor, the doctor was doing the, you know, as long as she's functioning, there's no problem. And meanwhile, there is no um, connection between the observer and the doctor to say this, you know, the impact of this that's spinning out in the family situation is problematic. So how do we close the loop on this so that the people who are the caregivers, the family, etc., also come into play in, in, in this whole sort of recognizing it and, and diagnosis? Well, to a certain extent, that's, that's what we at the Alzheimer's Society try to do. It's not always successful, um, but we try to be that, that, that intermediary that can bring the, the f family member, the caregiver's concerns and questions to the appropriate health care negotiator or whoever is going to. It doesn't always work. Uh, sometimes we do a, a, a fair amount of advocacy work, um, letting them know who to, who to contact, how to contact. Sometimes we contact um, people for a family member because they just don't have a comfort level to do that or contact the doctor. And of course, you have privacy legislation that gets in the way. Um, and uh, I just did a support group uh, yesterday and one of the family members was saying um, you know she she was so concentrated on caring for her her partner that she really didn't recognize how much progression how his disease had progressed how much more she needed and when people asked her you know uh, what do you need for her, for help for yourself? She, oh, she kept she kept saying nothing, nothing because um, she was just focused on on getting through the day. So some of those supports that people need and some of those connections, we can hopefully help with. Um, we can get Alberta Health Services involved. We can get inter uh, home care involved. So and the long distance caregiving is is is. Uh, a really more complicated kind of, of yes, go. So I, I just want to just have some clarification. So this is a case where it's the family member who's observed something, the doctor's only dealing with the patient, there can't be a connection there to say, to talk about what the problem really is. And is that the role that you're talking about or is it that the person's already been diagnosed and you're facilitating the caregiving? Because it's that, it's that connection between <coughs> recognizing the problem and talking to the doctor who's actually the doctor to the patient. Yes, and sometimes it's not the doctor that we can talk to because, of course, we have privacy issues. So sometimes we can do it 
from a sideways kind of point of view. So we go through the uh, RN who's the home care manager who may have a connection with the physician. Or if the physician is, is, is very adamant that he not talk to anybody uh, except the patient, and we know the patient has, a, has an issue around capacity and the ability to make decisions, then we can go through um, some of the systems that are set up to deal with emergencies, like 911, which then will put you in touch with a Oh, I see, I see what you're saying. There is no diagnosis. Um, yeah, no, uh, it's very difficult because you can't get a referral to a geriatrician without your family doctor agreeing to do that. And so we have a couple people actually right now who are caught in that loop where they keep going to the family doctor. The family doctor said, no, I'm, I'm not re referring you to the geriatrician. The geriatrician is saying, no, you can't have an appointment because you don't have a referral from the family doctor, that's when there's a couple of big decisions to make. Do you find a new family doctor who's gonna make the referral? Because sometimes that's what you ultimately have to do. Do you lay a formal grievance against your family doctor, which is pretty tough for people to do? Do you um, approach the seniors advocate office and see if there is some way they can intervene and that's of course government people with some power um, so so there are some routes to explore but you're you're absolutely right it is an open triangle and lots of times it doesn't close yeah uh, thank you very much for a very informative uh, presentation I'm Bev trainer and my question is could you please give guidelines uh, or places that people might go who are caretakers because the very often it's the spouse and uh, a lot of them isolate themselves and really don't know where to don't even look at their own well-being and their overall health so that's where i'd like you to speak thanks uh we definitely we have about uh, 350 people that we talk to. We have a first link program, so uh, we, uh, we talk to individuals who are caregivers for someone living with dementia. Uh, they, they come to us through referrals from doctors and home care workers, and they can refer themselves. So if you know somebody that's not, uh, not getting any service, tell them, you know, Phone, phone the Alzheimer's Society. They will connect you with some, some places to go. They, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, as I said, I just did a support group yesterday, um, the uh, people who are committed to caregiving, so, you know, people that have long-term marriages, that have, you know, strong families, that believe that they should keep their family together, people from the traditional generation, which my parents come from traditional generation. A lot of my boomer friends also have very traditional values. Um, so we have, made do we have made in blood promises. I will never put you in care. I will never, you know, you can stay in your home for as long as you want. Um, so, so these promises have been made 
Then we also have other factors that come into play as the other family members who only see the person once every six months or a year at Christmas, and they see them on a good day, and they say, oh, there's nothing wrong with Dad. Dad's fine, just fine. It's all in your head. You're making things up. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that go on here. And uh, I, one of the tips uh, Gal I was training was with me, and one of the things she said, asked the caregivers in the group, she said, what would be more helpful than just saying, take care of yourself? And uh, a couple of the care partners uh, said, you know, you need to be more specific than that. You need to say, come on, we're going out and we're going to get your hair cut. And, and your husband or your sister and Johnny is going to look after the person with dementia. So you have to be more concrete, you know. Why don't you take an hour and go for a walk and I'll sit at the house. Why don't you, you know, go get your nails done and I'll take Jim for a coffee. You know, those concrete things, but people are embarrassed. You have to know their values and their background. If you have a value that says, oh no, we're not going out with this, we're not telling people about it, then, you know, that's pretty hard to get past. Pretty hard to get past. The thing to remember, and I, I, as I said before, I'm kind of a plain talker, but the thing to remember is quite often the care partner or the caregiver, that person who's doing that 24-7, a lot of times when you're talking about older couples, that care partner's health is going to start to be shaky. And many times what we see, and it's, it's horrible, horrible, is we see care partners who end up in an ambulance on the way to the emergency room because they've had um, a fall or a heart attack or they've Something's happened, and the person with dementia who's been cared for 24-7 is, is at home with no one. So there's consequences to these, to these actions. And if you see a care partner who needs some help, um, I hope you will try and make that happen. Okay, this will be the last question. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, my name is Bruce Anderson. I have a question, Sherry, uh, with regard to your comment early in your presentation regarding the importance of uh, personal directives, uh, particularly personal directives in this province and the role they play in bridging some of these gaps uh, in terms of the family's uh, ability to become involved with helping their, uh, uh, the person that they're concerned about. Could you address that, please? Well, I'm not sure if everybody knows what wills are and personal directives and enduring power of attorneys are, but the will sets up your property, and that's what you use to make sure that your property is, is looked after, your houses, your, your, your money, your, 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 your things like that, your assets. And a personal directive, is, which is that one? The agency. The agent. The what? You may take over. She knows this so much better than me. I'm still learning what personal directive and what uh, enduring power of attorney are because they're really important. So the will is the distribution of your assets once you pass away, right? We, we know that. And, uh, uh, but in the province of Alberta, we have um, a couple of, of uh, acts, one of which um, names 
uh, you can name, before you're, you're, you have any problems, you can name an agent under a personal directive. And your personal directive, you sit down and you decide uh, what you want to happen with everything except money. Money is enduring power of attorney. So anything else from other than money is agency and personal directive. So what that means is where you're going to live, what kind of medication you're going to take, what your end of life requirements are, what you want to see happen. Um, we, uh, quite, uh, we, we want to remind people to do this because, uh, because you get to participate in the planning. You don't get a vote if you don't do these things. So if you make those decisions and you say, oh, you want to, to pick a person who's going to make decisions like you would make decisions. So um, in my family, I know my, my son would likely make decisions for me like I make decisions. My sister-in-law would never make a decision close to what I would make. And I certainly wouldn't want her anywhere near me if I couldn't make decisions. So, you know, some people want to make sure that nobody feels offended. So they, they, they name all their children as agents, which is, just makes it a nightmare for people because we don't have always the same values. My sister and I, I mean, if, you, if we grew up in the same house, I don't know. There must have been a different timeline because we are very, very different people. So the agency is when you can't make decisions for yourself. Who do you want to make decisions for you? The power of attorney is when you can't do your own financial piece, when you can't manage your own money, who do you trust to do that for you? So for my parents, it was my brother. My brother is a by-the-book budgeter, accounting. He's the guy. Brenda's a little more fudgy. Um, so she's good. She's great to look after all the healthcare things, where we're going to live. We know she's going to, you know, act the way we would act. The difficulty with this is you have to have the doctor enact that. So that, then capacity comes into play. And again, you have to make sure the doctor agrees that the person who has dementia no longer has the ability to make those decisions. Uh, I have people whose family members have enacted personal directives and uh, have made a choice to, to, uh, for them to live in a nursing home and uh, they are just fighting it tooth and nail. And they'll call me and say, I don't want to do it. And I'll say, well, a measure of capacity is your ability to instruct a lawyer. So I can't tell you what to do, but if you can do it yourself, go, go to you. But these documents are crucial. And if you are caring for someone with dementia and you're taking them traveling, these documents you want to have with, you want to have your green sleeve with you. You want to have your, your paperwork from your doctor with you uh, because, again, there can be great consequences. I think we're trying to close up here. Yes. Thank you for an excellent presentation. And so join me in thanking them again, Brenda and Charles.